Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 97, Only So Much. Yep, there's only so much we can know, and there's only so much we can do, at least at the moment. The only so much we can know bit applies to our current understanding of the universe. We can speculate, guess, and hypothesize, but there really is only so much we can know. Dear Cheap Astronomy, how big is the universe? Needless to say, we just don't know, beyond saying it's at least as big as the observable universe, and, very likely, it's bigger. The real answer to the question may just be unknowable, but there are some options we could consider. For example, one could argue we are in a small corner of the universe that looks like our observable universe because it's the only region of the whole universe from which anyone can make observations, the rest of the universe being uninhabitable weirdness where strange geometries and physics operate. As a consequence of that weirdness... Stars and planets and ecosystems could never form, and hence the unobservable parts of the universe are absolutely unobservable, since nothing could survive in those regions to observe them. That argument is perhaps irrefutable, since we will never observe the unobservable parts of the universe. But there are things about our observable universe that give some hints as to what the unobservable parts might be like. Everywhere we look in the observable universe, everything looks about the same. There's lots of galaxies of similar makeup, similar density, and of a similar age range. So it seems a bit unlikely that everything would suddenly change just beyond the edge of our observable universe. So we might reasonably assume the isotropy, that is, the sameness, that we see across our observable universe also persists across the unobservable universe. That is about all you can do, assume. But it's not an unreasonable assumption. Something else remarkable about the observable universe is that it's flat. Alexander Friedman used Einstein's general relativity field equations to propose three possible geometries of universes. An open low-density universe a closed high-density universe, and a flat, just-right-density universe with no curvature. The way you tell which one you're in is to project out two straight lines of huge but equal length, which form the two long sides of an isosceles triangle, then you calculate the expected length of the third side with trigonometry, and then measure the actual length of that third side through observation most commonly observation of the cosmic microwave background. If the observed length is the same as the expected length, then you know you're living in a flat universe where Euclidean geometry applies and the three angles of a triangle add up to 180 degrees. And this is what we consistently find from observations to date. We really do live in a flat universe. So... One school of thought is that because the observable universe is flat, 
then the whole universe must be hugely bigger, assuming it does eventually take on some kind of curvature. This means we are like flat earthers, who assume the earth is flat just because their immediate surroundings are flat. But the other school of thought is that our observable universe is flat, and the whole universe is just as flat, which means you can't then make any assumptions about how big the whole universe might be. So, if, like our observable universe, the rest of the universe is isotropic and flat, then we are back to having no clue about how big the whole universe actually is. The ultimate arbiter of the real size of the whole universe may be early inflation, which remains a hypothesis, but it does seem to tick a lot of boxes in explaining why our observable universe looks the way it does. Current thinking is that very early on, space-time popped out of a dimensionless nothing and proceeded to inflate at a crazy rate, creating the expanse that we see as our observable universe and potentially a whole lot more than that. There is a theory that inflation is still happening out there in an ever-widening volume, leaving more and more space-time behind in its wake. That space-time then just expanding at the steadier rates that we are familiar with. Or otherwise, maybe inflation just came and went in a split second, or maybe it lasted for 10 minutes. Whatever way it did actually happen has a substantial bearing on how big the whole universe really is. And once again, we just don't know the answer to that, at least not yet. This is the middle bit. Yep, all sorts of things might be going on out there that we'll just never know about. Get used to disappointment. We also said at the start of the episode that there's only so much we can do, which is a cautionary reminder that we need to be realistic in our planning and time frames. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, Are we really not going to Mars in the 2030s? Well, probably not. NASA's moving target is now 2037. It was previously 2033 until an independent review looked at their current plan and said no way, and also said no way to the next launch window in 2035. So it's 2037 now, which cheap astronomy guesses will be pushed into 2040 in about three years. China is talking about launching Tychonauts to Mars in the 2033 launch window, but without a lot of details on how, excepting some hints that they might use nuclear technologies, at least for power, if not propulsion. NASA's 2037 plan is to launch astronauts from Earth in the Space Launch System and Orion Capsule combo, the Orion capsule then docking with the planned Lunar Gateway space station, where the crew will then transfer over to the DST, the Deep Space Transport Vehicle, which will take them to Mars and back again. That independent review's main concern was that prototype testing of the DST really needed to start next year to make a 2033 launch. For China's proposed 2033 launch, 
It's possible their less transparent space agency is already building lots of exciting new spacecraft behind closed doors, but that's just possible, not likely. At this point in history, it's highly unlikely that any government or private company is going to invest the hundreds of billions of dollars required to get humans to Mars and back again when the chances of failure and crew mortality are as high as they currently are. Current propulsion technologies means a human-crewed Mars mission will take at least two years, and if they wanted to stay at Mars for more than a quick flag plant, the mission will be more like three years. Either way, two or three years is ample opportunity for all sorts of things to go wrong on a mission where you have to take everything you need with you. And apart from the mission infrastructure deteriorating over time, the astronaut's health will also deteriorate over time due to the effects of microgravity and also exposure to cosmic rays. There are theoretical solutions to these issues, but such solutions are barely on the drawing board, let alone flight-tested, and would require a radical departure from any spacecraft designs that are currently in production. Details are sketchy on NASA's Deep Space Transport Vehicle, but it certainly won't have rotation-induced gravity. At the moment, it's looking like an Orion capsule with a larger inflatable habitat module attached. It seems to be the case that the Mars-bound astronauts will get by much as astronauts on the International Space Station do. That is, they'll do lots of exercise to counter the musculoskeletal and cardiovascular effects of microgravity, although all the exercise may not help with other effects of microgravity, for example, its effect on visual acuity. The Cheap Astronomy Research Department couldn't find any details on enhanced radiation shielding. The standard Orion capsule has a radiation sensor intended to detect a burst of increased radiation, such as from a solar flare. The crew are then meant to huddle together, surrounding themselves with stowage bags to create a makeshift shelter. There's talk of a more permanent emergency retreat compartment planned for the Mars DST, but none of this thinking deals with the constant background of the generally more harmful galactic cosmic rays. So, you do have to wonder whether the agencies saying they will go to Mars in the 2030s really believe it themselves. NASA has a number of web pages covering a range of issues needed for a Mars mission that aren't obviously part of the 2037 mission plan. For example, the use of nuclear thermal propulsion and nuclear fission generators that will maintain power on the global dust-storm-prone Martian surface. These are very sensible ideas that the Chinese may be considering also. Other even less talked about parts of the mission are the Martian lander, along with the key issue of how it will carry sufficient fuel to both manage the landing and the subsequent launch back. Landing along with its launch fuel doesn't seem physically possible because it's just too much mass and the best current proposed solution is to source fuel from Mars itself. So, yes, we could go to Mars in the 2030s and maybe even land there. Whether we could take off again is another question and what kind of shape the astronauts might be at the end of such a mission is yet another question. 
Of course, a whole lot of development can be achieved in the next 16 years, but only so much. This is the end bit. So, there you go. It's a big universe. Quite literally bigger than you'll ever know. And we're still struggling to make it as far as the next planet out. But maybe this is the way to get hard things done. Keep offering up hypothetical time frames that are close enough to keep people's interest. And in the meantime, keep on developing capability until the day comes when you can actually get the job done. Nonetheless, here at Cheap Astronomy, we reckon humans will land on Mars when they have a reason to. And just planting flags and footprints isn't reason enough. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to propose your own unrealistic time frame, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll try to make it real for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.